Hi everyone, my name is Andreas Feiner and I would like to welcome you to our podcast, Important Problems. Together with my wonderful guests, we will address urgent problems such as sustainability, nature and mental health and how we can tackle them. Our aim is to show you that everyone can solve important problems. Hello, everyone. Today, we are sharing my conversation with Ken Pucker. Ken is a remarkable person. He started as an analyst at Goldman Sachs. Thereafter, he had a short stint at Bain, and then he worked for Timberland, where he learned a lot about sustainability. After his sabbatical in Jerusalem, he started his position as a professor at Tufts University. Today, he's fulfilling a big dream of his. He's pushing the Fashion Act, a legislation in New York addressing the fashion industry. You can find a link to this and to his other work in the show notes. But now, let's dive right into our conversation with Ken. Hey, Ken. Very good morning. So nice to have you back. Good to be here. Thank you so much. Um, Ken, we've been knowing each other for quite a while. Um, you know, when when I was setting up my business, we met in, in Boston in a, in a Starbucks and and you told me about your life. And, um, and uh, it is uh, a quite interesting one. So... So if you if you don't mind, um, can you tell our tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Uh, you know the ups and the downs, the stuff that worked and that didn't. Um, you know, so that they see that you are um, a very interesting human being. Well, I appreciate that. I will thank you for having me. I think in terms of um, my life from a personal perspective, I'm a husband. I'm a father of two daughters. I teach and write and advise on issues related to fashion and ESG and sustainability. I'm a big, big hockey fan, and I appreciate uh, kindness the older I get. In terms of uh, career path, uh, I think that's what you were referring to when you said interesting. Um, I'm happy to share with you kind of how it is I get to this place. Yeah. I think uh, when people ask for advice, I think it's often hard to give advice because I think most of us weave together stories about our career path while looking in the rearview mirror. Hmm. Yet when we're living it, it's typically not linear uh, yeah. and rarely expected. In my case, it, uh, there's certainly some right turns and left turns that weren't expected. But I started after college working in finance at Goldman Sachs, working 90 hours a week. At the time, I didn't mm. think that was unusual because it was my first job and everyone there worked the same way. Um, yes. I'd worked there for two years, and it was an interesting time when interest rates were coming down, and so there was an enormous amount of refinancing work. And I was asked after two years to move to a new city and start a regional office for Goldman. Mm -hmm. um, but... I actually chose not to. I decided instead to take a job making one-seventh the pay working at a think tank called the Brookings Institution, which is oh. a left-leaning think tank in the U.S. And the reason I did that was I wanted to find out ultimately if I wanted to get a Ph.D. and teach or if I wanted to get an MBA and pursue a career in business. Okay. So I worked for an international macroeconomist there named Ralph Bryan on a book he was working on. And... After about three weeks, I knew the answer to the question, PhD or MBA, and it was MBA. And the reason was twofold. One is the average academic who was working at Brookings, I thought was four or five standard deviations from the mean smart, and I didn't think I was that bright. And to make a difference as an <laughs> academic, I think you have to be really smart. And the second reason is it was very solitary. 
research. Okay. Uh, and although I'm not the most social person, I'm more social than the average academic. And so okay. I decided I would apply to business school. I did. I ended up at MIT in Boston and thought I would uh, reposition myself to get back into finance. Uh, as it turned out, uh, between years at school, uh, there was an opportunity to submit an essay and win the chance to take a trip to Korea and Japan to visit a number of manufacturers there at the time. And for those uh, far younger than I, uh, back in 1989-1990, Japan and Korea, from a manufacturing standpoint, were to the world what China is today. Mm. And so I submitted an essay and was selected to go on this trip, and we visited Toyota and Sony and Pusan Steel and Samsung and Hyundai and a number of other factories, and I was really turned on by uh, just-in-time manufacturing and the ability to improve quality and lower cost and drive productivity. And I changed paths when I got back from my second year at business school to focus more on operations. I decided I was going to commit myself to working in U.S.-based factories mm-hmm. um, to try to implement the same things that were going on in Japan and Korea. I graduated and got a job at Bain & Company, where I'd worked in the summer, mm-hmm. uh, uh, working with an auto manufacturer on at optionality and productivity project. They had a group then called Bain Advanced Manufacturing. Okay. And so I joined that group. I lasted for eight days. Oh, why is that? W- was laid off. Uh, I can be difficult and direct, but eight days would be a record for me. <laughs> uh, at, at the time, it's an interesting story. In 1990, Mitt Romney was at uh, Bain Capital. And Bain and Company was in financial difficulty, and they tried to sell themselves to Marshall McLennan, and the deal fell through. The banks got involved. Uh, Mitt Romney came over from Bain Capital to Bain Mm -hmm. and laid off 300 people as part of a restructuring in order to save Bain Consultant. Uh, So it didn't have to do anything with you, but it just happened to you. Yes. It's interesting to figure out how they decided who to lay off of my class. There were 52 of us who started. 38 got laid off. And so the question is, if you don't know these people, meaning we've been there for eight days, how do you make that decision? And what they did was they laid off everyone who wasn't either a former two-year analyst at Bain, so they knew them from their two-year tenure, or if they'd gone to Harvard Business School because they wanted to preserve a recruiting relationship. And no so I didn't, quali- I didn't qualify on either count. I went to MIT, and I hadn't been there prior. And so there were 38 of us uh, after eight days who got laid off. They were actually very kind to us, to be fair. Okay. Uh, outplacement, severance, honored our commitments in terms of bonus payout, all those kinds of things. And they actually helped me get a job at a manufacturer. Okay. So rather than work at a consulting firm learning at manufacturing, I went to work at a client of Bain's, Varian Associates, which is a multi-billion dollar Palo Alto-based manufacturer of semiconductor equipment and other things. And I worked as a shop floor supervisor in a factory uh, outside of Boston. And mm-hmm. at night, went to a trade school, Wentworth Institute, to get my basic lathe operator's degree okay. so that I could understand the processes that I was supervising. <laughs> and I stayed there for a couple of years, but realized pretty quickly that to ascend it that company at Varian, you had to be an engineer. Yeah. It was an engineering-intensive company. And so I switched after two years to work at a shoe company where engineering was less important and uh, ended up at Timberland, which was at the, at the time probably a $175 million company. It was publicly traded, um, based in New Hampshire. Um, it was in the 
second at the time generation of family control. Mm-hmm. So though it was publicly traded on New York Stock Exchange, it was controlled by a family, the Swartz family. And I ended up working for the second generation CEO, a guy named Sidney Swartz, as a first job uh, in the, again, back in the production and operations and planning uh, stage mm-hmm. at Timberland. And was fortunate to have a, uh, a wonderful career there that lasted 15 years across seven different jobs. Amazing. Amazing. And then you rose really to the top of, uh, of Timberland, or almost, if you want to say. <laughs> yeah, almost is right. The, um, as I mentioned, I started uh, working with, in planning, in scheduling the factories. After a year of that, the then CEO, Sydney, asked me if I would go run a factory. And I moved down to Puerto Rico, to the northwest corner of a town called Isabella, and ran a factory of 1,000 people, $30 million budget. I wasn't yet 30 years old. And I was the second person there who spoke English as a first language. Most people spoke Spanish. So mm. I took Berlitz and learned Spanish when I was there. Um, in any event, I had a bunch of roles at Timberland, and I was fortunate to be there because the company grew. And as the company grew, you get the chance to do things you might not deserve to do on paper, which was certainly the case for me. Um, and in the year 2000, the second generation of the family, Sydney, passed the company down to his son, Jeff, the third generation, who's a contemporary age-wise. And, and when Jeff became CEO, his father became chairman and I became chief operating officer. And I, again, I was lucky because during the seven years that I served as chief operating officer, Timberland had a great run. Uh, for 28 straight quarters, we um, recorded record uh, top line and bottom line profits. And I was part of a values-rich environment. Mm. Um, Jeff, the third-generation CEO, was committed to a business model he described as commerce and justice. Mm. And justice is a word one doesn't often hear in a business context, even in the year 2023. True. Um, And in the year 2000, he described justice as having three components, global human rights, Mm -hmm. citizen service, and environmental stewardship. And he focused most of his energy on the justice component, uh, leaving me to focus more of my energy on the commerce component of our agenda. But because of his leadership, Timberland did uh, amazing, innovative things in the world of what would be called ESG or sustainability today. Mm-hmm. Timberland was the first publicly traded company in the world to offer employees 40 hours of paid community service mm-hmm. at their own discretion. Oh, wow. um, Timberland powered all of its factories and headquarters with renewable energy. Again, this is at a time that renewable energy wasn't cheaper than conventional yes. energy. Um, Timberland was the, one of the first companies to issue a CSR report. It was the first public company to issue quarterly CSR reports with mm. critiques from outsiders. So, for example, Jeff invited Yvonne Schwinnard from Patagonia to write in Timberland CSR report what it was we weren't doing a good enough job of. Great. Um, and so on many dimensions, the company became a real leader in the world of CSR. Um, at the time, it was interesting. Um, uh, We didn't do a good job, I think, explaining what we were doing to customers. Um, And Wall Street didn't care Mm -hmm. at the time. I can give you an example. For those 28 quarters I referenced, Jeff reserved a third of his remarks to talk about Timberland's justice agenda on our quarterly calls with Wall Street. And never once did he get a question about that part of his script. It was always traditional questions about, you know, order book and gross margins and growth rates and things like that. But never once a question... 
And he became so frustrated that he decided not to go to our semi-annual analyst meetings because he didn't <laughs> think it was a good use of his time. So he sent the okay. junior varsity, which was me. Okay. Uh, and um, it's changed now, and we can talk about that. But back at the time, uh, customers were um, not well educated on what we were doing. Investors didn't care. But the real value, uh, in addition to planetary welfare of Timberland's justice agenda was um, the employees. I believe that we were able to attract and retain a caliber of employee for a billion and a half or $2 billion footwear company, footwear and apparel mm. company, that was two or three notches above what we could have otherwise recruited. Wow. Because I think good people can choose to work wherever they want. Yeah. You know, average employees maybe have to stick with an employer, but good people have options. Yeah. And so to retain and attract good people, I think you have to offer more than, you know, we made the quarter or we make good boots. Mm -hmm. And Timberland did that in spades in large part because of Jeff and his leadership. So would you say that kind of such a leadership is much more important than the extra dollar or how would you how would you see that? Because if you say good people have options. They could always go for the place where they earn more money. So what's your experience in that regard? My experience is that people don't often leave jobs for money as a principal motivator. I think they leave jobs because they don't respect their bosses, because they don't learn, because they don't respect the leadership of a company, because they disagree about strategy, because they have a personality conflict. But money is, I think, often used as an excuse for the really other issues, underlying root causes why people leave. Yeah. I agree with you. I agree mm. with you. Very cool. And then, and then after, you know, towards the end of your Timberland um, uh, career, you had the option to to kind of you know even go even more to the top, as you as you explained in in our first conversation. Yeah, in two thousand and five, I remember being at an outdoor retailer conference, which Timberland went to semi annually out in. Utah, Jeff asked me if I was uh, interested in becoming the CEO. He had decided he was done being CEO and he was going to become chairman. Mm -hmm. His father was going to become executive chairman and I'd become CEO. And I'd been there for 13 years at the time. And I was honored, really, uh, and grateful. And I asked him if I could have a little time to think about it some. And after a six-month period of conversations with my wife and with Jeff, I decided actually to pass. Mm. Um, he asked me, you know, would I stay for a period of time? Because the board wasn't keen on not having a succession plan. Yeah. A, and both the CEO and the COO, yeah. ne neither wanted to run the company. And so yeah. I knew that by saying no, it meant I'd have to ultimately leave. Yeah. But he asked for time to work out a transition. And I said, of course. And I ended up staying another couple of years. Um, wow. We went through a number of iterations around different leadership models. But after... Two more years, Jeff decided he was going to come back into the business and become not just the justice guy. I don't mean to simplify it. He did more than that. But did he be a full-time kind of See. leader of the company? Yeah. And he did that and ultimately sold the company uh, four years after that to VF Corporation. Okay. Very cool. And what did you do after you left Timberland then? So, so you will have made enough money. You have, uh, you know, a ton of experience. You were an investment banker. You worked at Brookings. So what was next? I didn't have a plan, to be honest. I was tired. Um, and so I uh, came home, talked to my wife some about it, and decided that I wanted to take a year off um, and travel overseas. Uh, my one requirement was that we go to a place that English wasn't the first language spoken. Oh, wow. Other than that, I was open to anywhere. And I said to my wife, you, you pick where and we'll go. 
Uh, we had kids at the time who were nine and seven, and I was traveling at Timberland probably 70% of the time. And mm. so it was a chance to reacquaint myself with my wife and kids. Um, <laughs> We were going to go to Spain, but uh, at, the, at the last minute, my uh, father asked me, why wouldn't you go to Israel? Your kids go to Jewish day school. You speak Hebrew. Um, why wouldn't you go there? And I said, I didn't feel that connected, and I was concerned about security. Mm. And he said, well, you don't have a job. Why don't you go with me for a week, and we'll check it out. And I couldn't say no. So we went, and we spent time in the north, in Herzliya, and nice. Tel Aviv. And yeah. uh, I called home, and I said, I'm not interested to my wife. It feels like Miami, but not as nice. <laughs> and my father then said, well, why, why don't we go to Jerusalem? And so we went to Jerusalem for a night, and I called home that night, and I said, let's do this. Okay. Because it was like nothing else. It was like stepping into history. And it wasn't as much faith-based. It was The reason we went was because my wife and I are more similar and di than different, and our kids inherit our DNA, and I didn't want them to live the same life. I yep. wanted them to take more risk. I wanted them to feel more comfortable failing. And... um I decided that if we didn't mess with them at an early age, they would take a path that was more akin to ours. But if we created something that built confidence and was hard for them, that's why no English is in the country, okay. um, it would create more resilience yeah. in our kids. And I think it has. I can't prove it. But it was the best year of my life. And it was also, um, I think, a gift to our kids. So what did you do there? Really, you know, enjoying your time or did you dabble left or right? A little of both. I, we lived in a 900-square-foot apartment. We had no television. We had no car. Mm. Um, we rented cars on the weekend for travel, or we flew to Turkey or to you know other places in the region to learn and uh, travel. I spent uh, my time um, at an uh, academy kind of uh, re-engaging on learning my Hebrew. Mm -hmm. I uh, ended up writing for the Jerusalem Post, which was you know the, the one of the English... Uh, publications in town. Um, I ended up working on a book with a friend who I met there um, <laughs> called Startup Nation, which turned out to be uh, an international bestseller. It was ultimately published in 35 languages. Wow. Um, and about halfway through my tenure, I was reconnected with a friend who worked at a firm in Boston, an investment firm, and ended up doing some work with them. So it was mostly focused on friends and family and living, like you said. There was some dabbling. Excellent. Very cool. And now you're a professor at Tufts University. What are you doing? I am. I feel, I feel lucky that um, I'm able to teach. I, um, when I came back from Israel, decided that I wanted in the second chapter of my professional career to connect um, sustainability to the world of um, capitalism in a more uh, profound way. I, I, I was concerned, uh, especially on the environmental front, that we were headed in a really bad direction and that our, my generation was leaving our kids a mess. Mm. And I thought that capitalism could be more of a... Uh, a cause for good, evidenced by what Jeff had led at Timberland. But mm. I was, the more I learned about the way that business was playing in the environment, the more concerned I became. And so one of the things I decided I wanted to do is teach. I have often told my kids there are three professions I think of that are noble and undervalued, and they are the military, they are uh, nursing and teaching. Mm. And it's not to say there aren't others, but those are the ones that I always thought were the yeah. sum of both noble and undervalued. And I'm too scared to go in the military and uh, 
didn't want to go back to nursing school, so that left teaching. Yeah. And so I started to teach at Boston University first, uh, a course that intersected sustainability, a discipline called systems dynamics, which is taught at uh, MIT, it's where I learned that, and the world of sustainability, trying to get to uh, legitimate conversations with students about uh, ways that they might re-energize the conversation of sustainability. And I did that for a decade, and then about three years ago, I switched to um, Tufts Fletcher School, um, where I teach uh, derivatives of the same class and a class on ESG investing. Very cool. So, which brings us to the present time. So, so you had a, a wonderful life, I guess, you know, really interesting, a great career. And uh, when one reads your articles now, you know, it's... It's more about the stuff in ESG that is uh, probably a little bit problematic. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your views on, on what is good at ESG, what is bad at ESG, where should we go from there, and, and how do you actually contribute to that? So, um, it's interesting. I think ESG is the latest chapter of a 30-year attempt for our companies and investors to bend the arc of um, capitalism towards good using uh, corporate voluntary win-win solutions. Mm. Um, it's interesting. If you go back and look at the history, the first in UN environmental conference was 50 years ago plus in Stockholm mm -hmm. in 1972. And an outgrowth of that was the Brundtland Commission in 1987, which published what is still used as the kind of working definition of sustainability. Yeah. And that work was really influenced by the International Chamber of Commerce and the U.S., who were committed to a path for environmental sustainability that was led by the market, that was led by business. Mm -hmm. can, you you quickly, back, can you quickly tell yeah. the, the listeners what the Brundtland Commission, there's one like sentence which is super important and uh, probably not everybody knows it. Um, could you Well, I don't, I don't remember it off the top of my head either. It's essentially sustainability is about um, enabling sustainable development while preserving the fut for future generations kind of the, 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 the environment. To the live the same life, the I guess, was the... Yes, but this notion of sustainable development was key, meaning yeah. it was business was going to be the one that engineered a... Uh, sustainable future. And that was based on faith in things like technology, yeah. uh, reporting, certification, mm -hmm. measurement. Um, and uh, there was good evidence at the time that technology was advancing and productivity was improving mm -hmm. and there were solutions at hand. It was a shift because if you go back and look prior to Brundtland Commission, at least in the United States, there was a period in the 1970s when Republicans were in charge of both houses of Congress and the presidency. That was the most fertile time in the early 70s for environmental regulation. Mm. The EPA was created. The Clean Air Act was created. The Clean Water Act was created. Um, this was all when Richard Nixon was president. Mm -hmm. And so the environment wasn't a Democratic-Republican issue at the time. It was a uh, as a uh, both Democratic and Republican issue. And regulation was seen as, even by business, as a important mm -hmm. element of what we've come to call sustainability. But that shifted with the Brundtland Commission and with the work of the International, International Chamber of Commerce and was abetted by academics, I think, who okay. proffered solutions like 
um, fortune at the bottom of the pyramid or eco-efficiency or creating shared value, yeah. which came out of, most of these came out of Harvard. Yeah. Um, and um, what they were based on was case studies. <laughs> they weren't based on empiricism or theory. So, for example, you can find businesses and instances of real great win-win solutions. If you change out the LED lighting uh, or to, to LED lighting from conventional lighting, you will save money, <laughs> okay, and you'll benefit the planet. Yeah. Um, there are good examples of companies that have invented their way towards solutions that yeah. better either social or environmental consequences in faraway places. Yeah. Uh, they're, and they're written up as HBS case studies. And they're really important and they're cool. But that's not to say that it always works that way. There was an important book published during this period of time called Green to Gold, okay. which was the, based on the same premise that you can, you can uh, improve efficiency – Drop money to the bottom line and save the environment, right? Mm -hmm. This is this market-based, corporate, voluntary, win-win strategy. And I think it's true about 10% of the time. Okay. I think in 90% of the time, it actually costs money mm -hmm. and time and human capital to transform a company to mm -hmm. be a better environmental steward. And if that's true, or if my math's even off by 50% and 20% of the, uh, or 15% or 20% of the cases are win-win, what about the other 85? True. A good way to think about it is this, in the space I spend a lot of time in, which is fashion. Mm -hmm. Let's say a fashion company reduces their emissions profile by 1% a year for 20 years, yeah. which would be good work. Uh, you know, at, and at the same time, it doubles in size over mm. a 20-year period. That's only 3.5% growth, yeah. right? Um, well, the environmental impact would be worse by 64%. Okay. That is meaning improving each unit's carbon footprint by 1% a year for 20 years versus at the same time, the company's doubling, you get, you get, you know, an environmental footprint that's 64% larger. Higher. Yeah. Okay. And yeah. so that's, what's actually happened by the way, almost yeah. to the, to the numbers in the apparel business, mm -hmm. the apparel business in uh, 20 years ago made about 50 billion garments. Today it's about 120 billion garments, sure. right? So it's a little bit more than doubled. Mm -hmm. And even with marginal improvements in footprint, um, you have, have the absolute overall, numbers much higher. Yeah. 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 And so that's actually, that's symptomatic of the problem of market-based voluntary solutions. It can, you can, you can end up making incremental progress per unit, but overall the problem becomes more damning. You know, the world doesn't care about intensity metrics or m moderate improvements in efficiency. It cares about planetary boundaries. Hmm. And unfortunately, I think in the case of sustainability and ESG, what they've served as is principal covers for companies to push back against regulation, which is required, I think, ultimately, if we're going to have a truthful conversation about living within planetary boundaries. Interesting. So, so I didn't really get why in the past, you know, Democrats and Republicans were both for regulation. And then Brundtland comes along and then basically becomes such a divided issue between Democrats and, and Republicans. So, so how did that happen? In the U.S., there was a very important um, Supreme Court decision called Citizens United years ago that essentially allowed for companies and trade associations to contribute directly to the campaigns of those running for office. Mm. And so lobbyists and um, executives, principally in the fossil fuel industry, um, became actively engaged in the political process. 
And money in the political process is a tough combination. Hmm. And um, yes, they've given to both Democrats and Republicans, but the principal contributions have gone to the Republicans. And the Republicans at the time were considered the party of business. Hmm. And so you ended up with the sum of more and more money going to Republican politicians and also massive disinformation campaigns by the oil companies. Mm. Wow. And that is also now kind of what we see at the moment as a result of that. Is, is that fair to say? You know, with the anti-ESG movement, with, you know, uh, 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 you know, red states basically disinvesting from companies that do some ESG, but then, you know, JP Morgan... Um, uh, uh, sponsoring those those conferences again. I mean, at the moment, you know what you hear, and I'm I'm not in the weeds of it, but it's just interesting. You know what's happening. Where do you see this going? Well, you're right that there's a division again. So you had the Republican Democrat division. Now you have pro ESG anti ESG division. I didn't spend much time talking about ESG, so I didn't answer your first question directly. But I think that ESG has been. Uh, oversold by a lot of its proponents. Mm. And that is what is driving the kind of anti-ESG versus pro-ESG movement. Got it. So ESG, I think, is really uh, important. I think ESG is just um, a good a way for investors to assess companies based on 21st century risks. Mm. Meaning, if I were an investor, I'd want to know if a company's factory was located in a floodplain. Yeah. Or I'd want to know if I was investing in an ag company, if it was uh, basing its revenues on farming in drought or flood Uh, infected regions, right? Mm. Those are good questions for any investor. Sure. I think it's prudent 21st century investing to think about uh, non-financial factors when making judgments. That's different than claiming that ESG investment will allow investors to invest behind their values mm -hmm. or deliver alpha or impact, mm. neither of which I think ESG investing has demonstrated it can do. Mm. Um, Think about it this way. I mean, ESG investing is said to be a $35 trillion category now, representing somewhere between one in three and one in every five dollars professionally invested. Mm -hmm. um, in order to get to a number that big, the category of ESG must be ill-defined, right? So there's seven <laughs> different categories of investing that fall under the ESG headline, thematic investing, ESG integration, negative screen, um, climate tech, impact investing, all these different categories. Sure. So, some of them are intended to drive planetary welfare, things like impact investing and climate tech. Mm. But they represent about 2% of mm -hmm. that $35 trillion number. The rest of it is mostly negative screen or ESG integration. Yeah. And ESG integration is just good 21st century investing, and negative screen is not going to improve your returns. And so I think the asset management industry – glommed on to ESG because it had a problem. Um, fees were contracting mm -hmm. uh, over a five-year period in the asset management industry. Um, fees contracted by about 450 basis points mm. because of a shift from active investing to passive investing. Mm. But when ESG comes along, because there's demand for it from investors, in large part because investors wrongly think it can align their value with values, Asset managers have been able to charge higher fees yeah. on ESG products. 
which has led to real rebranding and product creation on the ESG front, mm -hmm. lack of quality control on ESG, an absence of regulation allowed for this. And so what I think the red state treasurers have glommed on to is the fact that this has been oversold. Mm. And so their uh, arguments, I think, are nonsensical. But the, the asset management industry left an opening for them to make these arguments by overselling mm. what ESG can and can't do. Oh, wow. So what's next for you? So what's, uh, um, what's your plan in order to, to kind of, you know, help drive sustainability and um, into the world and, you know, basically do what you've done at Timberland, but uh, from, a different, from a different place, basically? Well, I... Have, the reason I started writing was during the pandemic, I realized that teaching was not a great leveraged use of time. I love doing it and I'll continue to do it. But you invest probably 100 hours, 200 hours to teach a class. You have 30 students. Um, and if you're lucky and you do a good job, you can bend the arc of four or five of them towards <laughs> a career that is more positive. And obviously, you stay in touch with students and help yep. guide them over time. But that's not a great uh, return on investment of time. And so that's why uh, I thought writing might actually be a, a better use of time because it reaches broader audiences. And I've been lucky because I've been published in uh, publications that have real um, uh, sway and reputation. And so I'm going to continue to do that to try to highlight the gaps between rhetoric and reality on things like um, sustainable fashion or impact accounting or ESG investing. I'm also uh, trying to be part of the solution as well. I've spent the last 18 months, for example, working on a piece of legislation that's being introduced this week in the New York Assembly. Oh, congratulations. Uh, that was a big dream you. of yours. Yeah, it's called the New York Fashion Act. And um, it does a lot of things. It's uh, based on OECD uh, requirements for due diligence. It applies to companies with revenues of $100 million and more globally that choose to sell in the state of New York. And it would say for those companies, they have to perform due diligence akin to what the OECD recommends. They have to report on their uh, each tier of their supply chain. They have to report on average wages versus living wages. They have to report on water usage and recycled material percentage and things like that annually, publicly. But it also says they have to comply with the Science-Based Targets Initiative, which requires that they um, reduce emissions by 4.2% a year. Mm -hmm. Absolutely independent of growth. Yeah. And if they don't, then the New York Attorney General has the right to find the company 2% of revenue. And so a lot of the problem with um, the voluntary system is that there's no consequence of missing yeah. environmental or social targets like yeah. there is for missing a quarterly revenue or EBITDA or profitability target. Now, if this law does pass, there will be consequences. And the intention of the law is to raise the floor, to make it the responsibility of the entire industry to drive solutions, not just rely on Patagonia or Eileen Fisher or Stella McCartney or Reformation or the few companies that are really trying very hard to do the work. Yeah. But they're very small as a percent to total. Yeah. And so if we're going to make progress against planetary boundaries, we need the entire industry working together. And so that's an intention, uh, the intention of the law. I can't guarantee whether it will or won't pass, but we chose New York because it's the fashion capital of the U.S. Yeah. Uh, it has Democrats in control of both houses and the governorship. Mm. And 
um, it's a big enough place that if the law passes there, it's de facto federal legislation because yeah. most brands don't want to choose not to sell in New York. They yeah. do want to sell in New York. Yeah. And so uh, the industry is not terribly thrilled with this as an idea, <laughs> but I think that ultimately it will serve the industry because if fashion doesn't clean up its act, ultimately it'll lose its license to operate. And yeah. so I'm hopeful this uh, happens and I'll continue to work on it, but that's the kind of stuff that I want to be working on. Excellent. I love what you do. Thank you so much, Ken. And uh, it was an absolute pleasure to have you. And um, I will put in a couple of your articles into the show notes um, so that uh, listeners can, can also read those. And uh, really grateful that you've been here. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. This is the end of today's episode. But stay tuned. Many more interesting topics are yet to come. And don't forget to hit the follow button to never miss a new and exciting episode of our podcast, Important Problems.